This is the Music Publishing Podcast with your host, Dennis Tobensky. Join Dennis in his weekly nuts and bolts conversations with composers, performers, and other arts professionals as they navigate their careers as concert musicians in the 21st century. And now your host, Dennis Tobensky. Hello, and welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. I'm here with, uh, again, with Mark Ostro. This is your third time on the show. Welcome back. Ooh, it's a hat trick. Yeah, you now you rival uh, Garrett Hope for most times on the show. So you you now share the title of um, Justin Timberlake to my SNL. <laughs> wow, do I get some sort of prize? Uh no. <laughs> Didn't think so. It's a nice it's, thought. Yeah, it's just, you know, you get to have a little co-title. <laughs> and I'll be the captain. Indeed. <laughs> Our little in-joke. Um, so, Mark, well, again, welcome back. Um, we were just talking before we, we got on. We can just launch right in here since people you know, presumably know who you are. Um, we're talking about um, some of the legal developments that have been happening in the world of copyright of late. Um, well, yes, uh, copyright generally and to uh, more specifically how that impacts uh, musicians of all stripes, in, including composers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just as a matter of background, I just finished teaching uh, a music law class at Cardozo Law School. The first time I've taught at the law school level, and uh, some of this stuff is relatively fresh in my mind at, <laughs> at, at this point. Um, you know, part of the part of the backdrop here, and some of the things that I'm going to discuss are um, you know things that really. Um, in this particular political climate, there's also there's been all sorts of um, activism on mm -hmm. both sides of the aisle uh, since the last election. Mm -hmm. And um, while most of the uh, artistic community, uh, at least from my Facebook feed, tends to uh, sway to the left of center, mm -hmm. um, a lot of these issues that I'm talking about. Um, some of the not so good stuff were actually uh, implemented by the Justice Department in the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the other stuff that I'm going to be talking about is surprisingly bipartisan. Mm -hmm. um, so there you have it. Did you know, for example, that approximately two-thirds of a songwriter or composer's income is regulated by the federal government? I did not. Well, for those who are listening to this podcast, it is a very important thing. Um, guess how much of a novelist or playwright's income is regulated by the federal government? I would say substantially less. I would say zero. Yep. Guess how much a painter or a sculptor or choreographer's income is regulated by the federal government? Uh, let's say zero. Uh, let's say zero. <laughs> now, let's get a little closer to home. How much of a recording artist's income is regulated by the federal government? Let's guess zero. Well, it's close to zero with one gaping omission which we can which we can talk about uh, when we get to uh, some of the pending legislation and other legal developments. Um, so you know a little bit of backstory. The reason why um, so much of a composer or songwriter's income is regulated by the federal government uh, is twofold. One, the compulsory mechanical license, which uh, I don't know if we've covered that term before or if your listeners are necessarily familiar with that term. Mm -hmm. But what the compulsory mechanical license is, whenever somebody wants to do a cover recording of a song, mm -hmm. the copyright owner, typically a music publisher, and if you are not represented by a music publisher, you are self-published, and therefore, guess what? You are a music publisher, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, copyright owner 
um, can't say no as long as the strictures of the statute are um, complied with and the statutory rate set by the government in accordance with the Copyright Act is paid. That statutory rate is currently 9.1 cents for uh, a musical composition that is five minutes or less or 1.2 cents for each additional minute or portion thereof mm -hmm. on top of that. So <clears throat> just by way of background, uh, where did this mechanical license come from? And why is it called a mechanical license? Funny you should ask, Dennis. <laughs> uh, mechanical license goes all the way back to when the reproduction of music was done by way of piano rolls. <laughs> and there was a company called the Aeolian Company, which was in danger of cornering the market on all the popular songs from music publishers. And there was a court case, blah, blah. And so after that, uh, the, uh, the Congress enacted this compulsory license mm -hmm. so that if a song has been commercially released on a recording, and so uh, the publisher can't say no. Now, mind you, even for songs that technically don't qualify for the mechanical license, that statutory rate is generally used as the benchmark for what a newly released recording of a song that hasn't previously been recorded uh, is going to get paid. Mm -hmm. So in except in very, very, very rare instances, nobody ever pays more than the statutory rate for cover recordings. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's gone from piano rolls to 78s to LPs to 45s to eight tracks and cassettes to CDs and now downloads. Mm -hmm. So that's one area where um, the federal government has regulated the income of uh, songwriters and composers. Now, are you a member of either ASCAP or BMI? Uh, ASCAP. ASCAP. Good. Uh, I happen to be a BMI writer. I, you know, I once worked for BMI, as I think you know, and uh, I have lots of friends at ASCAP and used to be on the uh, Symphony and Concert Committee once upon a time. Um, both are fine organizations and, as you know, basically do the same thing. They license the non-dramatic public performing rights in musical compositions. Mm -hmm. But ASCAP and BMI have been operating under consent decrees um, that were entered into uh, over 70 years ago huh. in settlement of federal antitrust uh, litigation. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the party that brought the suit was the United States government in the form of the Department of Justice. And so <clears throat> there is a judge in the Southern District of New York where the proceedings were brought one for ASCAP, one for BMI, who retains jurisdiction over these decrees. And the Department of Justice periodically chimes in on how these decrees are to be interpreted. So between revenue from rec sales of recordings and revenue from your public performances, mm -hmm. that constitutes well over 50% and closer to um, two-thirds of a composer's income, typically. That's not true for concert music composers because there's a fair amount of, uh, certainly for large-scale works, there's uh, rental income from rental of performance materials mm -hmm. for large-scale orchestral works and, and operas and even um, chamber orchestras. Um, but Again, this stuff is regulated by the federal government. But here's where it gets a little bit interesting with respect to sound recordings. So the, the, the example that I like to use is New York, New York, a wonderful song mm -hmm. uh, by Candor and Ed, who happen to be uh, BMI writers, mm -hmm. just as easily be ASCAP writers. Um, and the song has been recorded many times. 
Um, you know, there's the Liza Minnelli recording, there's the Sinatra recording. So let's take the Sinatra recording, because that's what they always played when the Yankees uh, won at, at home games. And for some reason, and I don't know if they still do this, because it's been a while since I've been up to Bronx, uh, that whenever they lost, they would play the Liza recording. And I have no idea what they had against poor Liza Minnelli. Um, but in any event, um, the Sinatra recording is probably a little bit more well-known. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the song is played on the radio or on broadcast TV, um, Candor and Ebb and their music publisher get paid through BMI because the radio and TV stations have blanket licenses mm-hmm. and those public performances get covered and uh, they get paid. How much do you think the estate of Frank Sinatra and uh, Capitol Records gets paid for those same performances? I'm not sure. The answer is bupkis. Mm. They get paid absolutely nothing. The United States is currently one of less than a handful of nations that does not recognize a broad uh, public performing right in a sound recording that would cover uh, uh, traditional broadcast radio and television, meaning AM, FM radio, and and over-the-airwaves TV. We are in the august company of such nations as the People's Republic of China, North Korea, and Iran. Awesome. So, um, over the years, um, you can imagine that the recording industry has made noises about wanting to change this state of affairs mm-hmm. um, because that's a lot of money that's not being collected because you know, other countries have this right. And sometimes, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, writers don't get paid even for overseas because there's no reciprocity. <laughs> so the radio stations and TV stations uh, through um, the uh, National Association of Broadcasters um, and this is especially radio. The, the the argument has always been, well, we you get, you've always wanted radio airplay. You still want radio airplay. You give us our you give us the records for free, and you you want us to play it because we're giving you free promotion. Mm-hmm. Now we've promoted the sale of your recordings for um, you know better part of a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Now, that argument, to the extent it was ever valid, um, has not had the same amount of traction since the dawning of the Internet, Mm -hmm. because where do people more and more, uh, how, how do consumers consume music these days? Uh, more and more people, and probably at this point the, the majority of people, consume music via streaming. Mm-hmm. And we've gone from an economy where people buy stuff and own it mm-hmm. to people wanting to have access to stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so it used to be that the performance of the music was kind of the set the the advertising for people to go buy the product and this is how people made money both the songwriters from the mechanical royalties and the recording artists and the labels from the sale of physical product mm-hmm. but now with streaming the performance is the product mm-hmm. and over the last from about 2000 since you know basically since you know the time Napster hit through about two years ago, the overall revenues of the music industry had decreased by over 60%. Yeah. So, you know, that's because a recording, an album, you remember what a CD costs. I mean, 15, 18 bucks, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a recent report that was reported not just in 
you know, by the RIAA or the NMPA, the, the music industry lobbying people. This was a publication called The Hill. And The Hill is a publication that covers what's going on in Congress. Mm-hmm. So it's not really partisan on one side or the other with respect to music. And they reported a statistic that says um, that for every million streams, uh, the songwriters get paid about 170 bucks. Mm-hmm. That's kind of hard to sustain. Yeah. Um, so that uh, has led to uh, you know a contraction of the industry. Another thing that uh, I came across recently in uh, Dean Kay's uh, aggregator blog, um, it's the uh, Daily ASCAP News mem- Letter. If you're an ASCAP member. Mm-hmm. or for the non-members who subscribe anyway, it's called the Dean's List. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dean Kay makes no bones about that he's putting out these articles from the perspective of being pro-creator and pro-content owner as opposed to the service providers mm-hmm. and the streaming services and the, and the industries that use and exploit the content. And I don't mean exploit in a negative context. I mean exploit in the legal context, meaning they're using the stuff and making money off of it. Um, And Dean Kay had provided a link to this documentary that's come out that I think uh, Garth Brooks was either a producer and or a narrator of. And it's been it's and it's about it's called The Last Songwriter and it's about the decimation of the songwriting community in in Nashville, which of course is Music City. Mm-hmm. And again, some historical background. Um, there has been a long tradition of a profession and a craft of songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, while George Gershwin was an able pianist um, and Irving Berlin did perform publicly in their movies where he performed. Mm. Um, nobody ever heard Rogers and Hart perform. Nobody ever heard Oscar Hammerstein perform. <laughs> Have you ever heard either Burt Bacharach or Stephen Sondheim sing? I don't believe I have. You can, there, there are clips online. It isn't pretty. Um, <laughs> either one of them make Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan sound uh, sweet and mellifluous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to listen to these guys perform. <laughs> um, you know, Lieber and Stoller wrote all these classic hits for Elvis and others in the 1950s. They weren't performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, people from the Grill Building, uh, a lot of them, I mean, Carol King later became a performer, Neil Diamond later became a performer, mm-hmm. but Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who've written a zillion hits and who are also featured in the music Beautiful, um, you know, are not performers. Um, so, you know, you used to be able to make a living as a songwriter, but with streaming, right, the way things are right now, mm-hmm. subject to change, and there's always upheaval uh, in, you know, when you have a, shall we say, a disruptive technology like uh, the rise of streaming, or yeah. things eventually get sorted out. Mm-hmm. And I think, to be optimistic, I think, sometime in the next five to ten years things will get sorted out whether by legislation or negotiation or a combination of the two Mm -hmm. that um the content creators the songwriters and publishers the the artists and labels will get more of the pie from streaming than they do now because this model right now isn't very sustainable the streaming services need the content and they need new content but you know, $170 for a million streams is not really uh, paying the mortgage. No. So that's that's some of the background here. Then there is underpinning all of this are the copyright laws and the copyright office. Mm-hmm. Now, um, did you know that the copyright office, um, since it's, uh, founding in 1897 has been part of the Library of Congress. Yes. 
Did you know that the Register of Copyrights, the head of the Copyright Office, not the Registrar, it's the Register, mm -hmm. um, is not appointed by the President, unlike the, uh, the head of the Patent and Trademark Office, I which is independent. Mm -hmm. Who appoints the Register of Copyrights under the current system? I forget. The Librarian of Congress. Hmm. Now, the Copyright Office serves many functions, including uh, the registration of, of copyrights and keeping records such as uh, uh, assignments and transfers that are recorded there mm -hmm. and administering compulsory licenses, including the mechanical license and that sort of thing. Um, and one of the reasons why it was put in the Library of Congress is, as you may know, since you've registered copyrights in your works, you have to fill out an application and you also have to submit a deposit copy of what the work is, right? So that was a way for the Library of Congress, the largest library in the world, to build its collection. Mm -hmm. But over time, the Copyright Office advises both Congress, it advises the executive branch, um, and there are times when the interest of copyright may not coincide with the interests of a library. For example, librarians always want to expand fair use. Um, Copyright owners tend to not want to do that. Um, so we had a situation where the prior register of copyrights, Maria Palante, who had been uh, the register of copyrights, I think since around 2011, had made noises and testified before Congress and submitted these lengthy uh, uh position papers, and there was also a scathing rec a report from the General Accounting Office on how horrible the IT systems were at the Copyright Office and the fact that they were tied into the Library of Congress and they had no independent budget and blah de blah um, to make the case that the Copyright Office should be independent, just like the Patent and Trademark Office. Um, and there was a fair amount of bipartisan support for this. Meanwhile, fast forward to last fall, mm -hmm. um, the Librarian of Congress, Jim Billington, who had been a Reagan appointee and had, had been there for 27 years, mm -hmm. and he was a renowned Russian scholar, but not an actual librarian, uh, retired. Um, he was in his 80s, and to give you an idea of where he was at, as brilliant a man as he may uh, be, he still didn't use email or a computer. <laughs> um, so President Obama uh, nominated, and uh, the, the Library of Congress is a presidential appointee that has to be confirmed by the Senate, uh, nominated, and, and uh, Carla Hayden uh, was confirmed. And she's actually the first librarian to be the Librarian of Congress, as opposed to a scholar of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine, um, but as we'll see when we get to other things relating to the Obama administration and copyrights, um, Carla Hayden uh, and Maria Palante apparently uh, did not get along, and for the first time in its history, the Librarian of Congress um, effectively terminated the Register of Copyrights. Mm -hmm. She didn't actually fire Maria Palante. She reassigned her away from the Copyright Office and putting her in charge of things like the Library of Congress gift shop. <laughs> so she was, as we say in the legal biz, constructively terminated. And she resigned, and she's now taken another position. Um, and right now, we do not have a register of copyrights. Mm. And this was seen as somewhat of a political move, because for better or for worse, Maria Palante was perceived in some circles as being too pro 
uh, copyright owners, uh, which would include copyright creators, because mm -hmm. um, for these purposes, the the um, interests are aligned, as opposed to Google <laughs> and uh, other um, users of intellectual property. Um, so this uh, sparked a fair amount of outrage mm -hmm. and <clears throat> a few months ago there was a bill that was proposed to um, make the uh, register of copyrights a uh, presidential appointee mm -hmm. and it's called HR um, 1695, the Register of Copyrights Selection and Accountability Act of 2017. Now, what's important about this is that it had bipartisan support. Um, in fact, the sponsor was uh, Representative Goodlot, who's a Republican, mm -hmm. uh, had certainly Democratic support. And unlike so many bills, this was actually passed by the House of Representatives on April 26, hmm. so very recently. And so what does this bill do? Well, it takes the Register of Copyrights away from the uh, purview of the Librarian of Congress. <laughs> it says that the uh, Register of Copyrights will be a presidential appointee um, with the advice and consent of the Senate mm -hmm. and the, and the register shall be selected from a list of at least three individuals recommended by a panel composed of the speaker of the house, president, president pro temp of the Senate, uh, the majority and minority leaders of the house and the Senate and the librarian of Congress. Just so, you know, the librarian of Congress isn't totally shafted <laughs> because this bill doesn't go whole hog. Mm -hmm. and make the Copyright Office itself an independent agency, it does make the Register of Copyrights yeah. an independent presidential appointee. Mm -hmm. And it says to be eligible, um, the Register has to be a U.S. citizen with professional background in copyright, blah, blah, blah. And the mm -hmm. term would be for 10 years, subject to reappointment by the same procedure. Mm -hmm. And the person would still serve at the pleasure of the president. Mm -hmm. So that is an important piece of legislation that is now going to the Senate. And hopefully it will somewhat depoliticize an office that for nearly all of its time in existence has not been a heavily politicized office. Mm -hmm. um, past registers of copyright, including Maria Palante, had a, a great deal of influence and respect. And there's lots of position papers uh, and studies that the Copyright Office does. And these are generally thoroughly uh, done, including public hearings and public comment. And it's not one of these typically partisan things to do. Um, so that's that piece of legislation. Interesting. Then we come to the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act of 2017. And this was introduced, or shall I say reintroduced on March 30, mm -hmm. because a prior version of this bill was introduced in 2015. Now, what does the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act do? you might ask. Well, it goes to why I went into um, a fair amount of background. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to um, sound recordings and that sort of thing. So going back to what I said about sound recordings. So right now, when sound recordings are played over traditional radio and TV, mm -hmm. there's no public performing right. Yeah. However, since 1995 and, you know, updated 
1998 with the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, mm -hmm. which we all know and love. Um, <laughs> those of you familiar with notice and takedown provisions. Mm -hmm. um, there has been, since the 19th, mid to late 1990s, a very limited public performing right in sound recordings to wit um, by digital transmission, mm -hmm. which basically is streaming on the internet. Yeah. So even when traditional uh, broadcasters broadcast an HDTV and it's digital or whatever, that, that still doesn't count. Mm -hmm. It's basically streaming on the internet. So under current law, if a radio station has a simulcast stream mm -hmm. of its over-the-air signal, <laughs> the sound recording, there's no public performing right and no royalties payable for the performance of the sound recording over the air, mm -hmm. but there are royalties payable <laughs> for when that recording is streamed. <laughs> Although there is a little wrinkle with that, which I'll get to in a second. Mm -hmm. Now, what the DMCA did is there are certain types of streaming, as we know, mm -hmm. for the, and for radio, that's a classic example of what we call non-interactive. Mm -hmm. It's just the simulcast of the radio station. Mm -hmm. The user can't select you know, a type or style of music that you do with some of the services. And it's not on-demand streaming like with YouTube. You click on, you select the, the music of your choice and mm -hmm. it plays that song yeah. so with respect to non-interactive stuff just like with um mechanical royalties there's a compulsory license for that mm -hmm. and that compulsory license is administered by an organization called sound exchange which you may have heard of mm -hmm. And what sound exchange does is they kind of function for this particular license for non-interactive streaming that, that qualifies for compulsory license, um, they function kind of the way as CAP and BMI do. So they license these public performance and sound recordings and collect the fees to the uh, uh, from the streaming services and pay them out uh, as follows. Uh, just as ASCAP and BMI pay writers and publishers directly, so the writer's share doesn't go through the publisher, mm -hmm. um, Sound Exchange pays 50% to the label, 45% mm -hmm. to the principal artist, mm -hmm. whether that's an individual artist or, or a group, mm -hmm. and 5% to the backing musicians that's paid to a fund through the musicians' union. Okay. Okay for stuff that doesn't qualify for the compulsory license, these deals have to be privately negotiated. Yeah. So there is a public performing right in a sound recording for streaming, mm -hmm. but not the larger picture terrestrial uh, broadcast, uh, traditional radio and TV. Mm -hmm. Now here's where the wrinkle comes in. Did you know that sound recordings that were created Prior to February 15, 1972, why February 15 and why 1972? A little before my time, I don't know exactly why that, was, that particular date was set. But sound recordings that were created before February 15, 1972 are not protected by the federal copyright statute. Hmm. Hmm. Exactly. Hmm. <laughs> you did not know that. I'll bet lots of your listeners to this podcast did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are some historical, perhaps hysterical reasons for this. Um, but it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. However, under the current Copyright Act that was enacted in 1976 and went into effect January 1, 1978, and it's been amended a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. uh, the DMCA was the, the biggest amendment. Um, 
pre 1970s of the shorthand that's used in the biz is pre 72 recordings even mm. though we what we really mean is pre february 15 1972 <laughs> so pre-72 recordings they do become protected under federal copyright as of the year 2067 okay so does that mean that these recordings are not protected at all no no we have a federal system in this country. We have federal laws mm -hmm. and we have state laws. Mm -hmm. So pre-72 recordings are protected by state copyright laws or common law copyrights, which prior to the enactment of various federal statutes that, um, that covered various types of works, uh, the common law did protect this stuff. Mm -hmm. For example, the very first copyright statute was enacted in the very first Congress of mm -hmm. 1790. Mm -hmm. it, that first copyright act didn't protect musical compositions. Those weren't protected until about 1831. So there has been a gradual historical uh, increase in the net that of creative uh, works that are protected by copyright. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now, pre-1972 recordings are still copied, uh, still protected by various state laws. Mm -hmm. But this streaming statute is, of course, a federal law. It's Section 114 of the Copyright Act. Yeah. So Sirius XM, which is the principal you know, uh, digital service says, well, guess what? We don't have to pay performance royalties for pre-72 recordings because this is a federal statute that grants a federal right of public performance. Mm -hmm. And the Federal Copyright Act says that these recordings are protected by the federal law. So <laughs> there. Yeah. <laughs> That's the technical legal argument. So there. Mm. <laughs> so there is a uh, company called Flo and Eddie, and Flo and Eddie are are two guys. Uh, is a co corporation controlled by two guys. They're not actually Flo and Eddie, but who Flo and Eddie are are the principals of a group called the Turtles, mm -hmm. who big hit who had a bunch of hits but their biggest well-known hit is happy together yeah okay that song is used all over the place mm -hmm. and so they filed a bunch of lawsuits in new york in california mm -hmm. uh in florida and they won california uh they lost in florida i believe and they initially won in new york um and again California was based on a specific California state statute. Florida, there was no statute, it was just pure common law. Mm -hmm. New York, there was no statute. And so the district court in New York said, yes, there is, New York state uh, would recognize a right of public performance in a sound recording. Mm -hmm. um, it went up to the Second Circuit on appeal, and the Second Circuit said, this is New York law. There's no case on this. So we're <laughs> going to certify this to the highest court in New York State and certify the question to the New York Court of Appeals, which most states in the union, the highest court in the state is the Supreme Court, just like it is in the United States. The United States Supreme Court is the highest court. New York has to be different. Of course. The Supreme Court is the trial court. The highest court in New York is the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. So the Second Circuit certified this question to the New York Court of Appeals, and the New York Court of Appeals came out with a decision this past December, um, basically saying, for various policy reasons, we think it's a good idea to have a public performing right in the sound recording, mm -hmm. and certainly the argument is a legitimate one that says that it is left to the states, including New York State, Mm -hmm. to determine whether or not there is a public performing right and other protections mm -hmm. for pre-1972 recordings. But 
what's the scope of this right? We have no idea. Does it include grand rights? Does it include, you know? Mm-hmm. So they said that this isn't a decision for the court to make. This is a decision for the legislature to make. So they said, mm-hmm. as of now, we say, even though it may be a good idea and the legislature legislature might want to do something about this, mm-hmm. we say no. Which, okay, fine. If you think about it, if each state had a separately defined right of public performance in a sound mm-hmm. recording or, or having none at all, mm-hmm. how would over the internet which does not rep- recognize state boundaries yeah this could create a fair amount of confusion and chaos yeah so part of what the fair play fair pay act does is it doesn't completely federalize um pre-72 sound recordings but it does say for purposes of digital audio transmissions these recordings are going to be covered. Okay, cool. Now, one of the other things that happens is with respect to certain determinations of statutory licenses, mm-hmm. um, some rights are determined on what's called a reasonable fee standard. Mm-hmm. And others are determined on a fair market value standard, or another way of putting that is willing buyer, willing seller. Mm-hmm. And what this legislation says, it shouldn't matter what platform you're on to determine what the nature of the rate that you're going to pay. Everything we think should be on a willing buyer, willing seller, fair market value rate. Now, going back to the ASCAP and BMI consent decrees, Mm -hmm. again, it's been argued for decades that the consent decrees, because they put various restrictions on uh, the ability to license public performing rights by ASCAP and BMI, Mm -hmm. that these artificially depress what the rates in a free market uh, the the rates that would be paid songwriters and publishers, including composers, would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one reason for that is that if the parties can't agree, let's say ASCAP wants to license a new streaming service, mm-hmm. um, and they can't reach an agreement for a negotiated rate, the service, any user can just send a letter to the to the rate court judge governing mm-hmm. that consent decree, to the ASCAP rate court judge, or the BMI rate court judge as appropriate, mm-hmm. and say, we want a determination of a reasonable rate. So you go to rate court. Mm-hmm. And under both the ASCAP and BMI consent decrees, as soon as you send that letter, guess what? You're automatically licensed. Yep. And it can take years to get the... And it can take years to resolve. And sometimes the judge will order what's called an interim fee Mm -hmm. at an interim rate, which can be raised or lowered retroactively once the litigation is taken care of Mm -hmm. or not. So the other thing is that the consent decree says that the judge will determine a reasonable rate, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily a fair market value rate. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason. So, that's another reason why um, songwriters and composers have been saying for a long, long time that they uh, are not compensated the way they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act doesn't address the consent decrees, mm-hmm. but what it does do is it does have a provision that says that nothing in this bill with respect to addressing the royalties payable for sound recordings shall in any way lower the mm. fees that are paid for the use of the musical compositions mm. in the so there's a public performing right in the compositions mm. and a public performing right in the um, 
in in the underlying in, in the recordings and in the underlying compositions. Mm. So those are the two big pieces of legislation uh, that uh, are pending before Congress right now. Um, like I said, the one regarding the register of copyrights has already passed the House. Mm-hmm. Um, fair, fair play, fair pay uh, didn't get out of the House the last time around. Hopefully this time around it will. And I think at this point um, uh, it might be a good time to break, to come back for another time to talk <laughs> about the, uh, the DOJ uh hundred uh, percent licensing issues yeah. and uh, some of the questions that you had about options regarding publishing and self-publishing mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. How does that sound? That sounds that good sounds to good. me. Alrighty then. So um, do you have any questions for me, Dennis, since I've kind of rambled through uh, some fairly uh, arcane stuff, but this stuff is important. Mm-hmm. for all creators of music because composers eventually have their music recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, composers have their music streamed and mm-hmm. have their music played in venues that uh, are licensed by ASCAP and BMI. So just as there has been uh, an uptick in uh, people lobbying Congress on various issues. Mm-hmm. It's important for the music community in, generally, in general and the composer community in particular to pay attention to these things and mm-hmm. to support the legislation and policies that, that benefit creators mm-hmm. of music. Mm-hmm. So do you have any questions for me, sir? Oh, I, I, there's, I don't think I do. <laughs> there's enough uh, information here that it's still seeping in through my skull. Um, what I mean, so what's your take on um, about the register of copyrights as potentially being a, a presidential appointee? Um, that seems to kind of do exactly what was done to Palante? Well, in in a way, not really, because, you know, the librarian of the librarian of Congress, Mm -hmm. again, there are competing policy issues that affect a library versus what affects the copyright office. Mm -hmm. And while the librarian of Congress is a uh, presidential appointee, it was unprecedented that a register of copyrights has ever been effectively removed by the Librarian Congress. Mm-hmm. And while people may disagree with who happens to be the occupant of the White House at any given time, mm-hmm. certainly plenty of people um, have very strong views pro and against <laughs> Uh, the 45th president, just as they did for the 44th president and the mm-hmm. 43rd president <laughs> and every president. Uh, the theory is that by making it a presidential appointee mm-hmm. subject to confirmation by the Senate and for a 10-year term and all these qualifications that are laid out in the statute that it, mm-hmm. that it has to be from a list of at least three people mm-hmm. that includes all the, the leadership of the, the majority minority leadership of the House and the Senate mm-hmm. and the Librarian of Congress mm-hmm. that you're going to get somebody who is both qualified and mm-hmm. is going to serve for a reasonably long period of time and have more independence to make policy decisions based upon what is good for copyright generally taking into account the user community and the content creator owner community. Mm -hmm. And that will strike 
a better balance than just having somebody appointed by the Librarian of Congress who may or may not know anything about copyright okay. and without all these other requirements that are now going to be put into this put into this bill. Okay. So I think I think this is generally a good thing. Okay. And I think it will give the Copyright Office a little bit more independence mm -hmm. and hopefully insulate the Copyright Office uh, somewhat from the political winds, which frankly, for nearly all of its existence, it, it has been, although it's still kind of a historical quirk that it is part of the Library of Congress mm -hmm. because the deposit copies, while a very important function, that's just but one facet of what the Copyright Office does. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, um, anything to add to, to those things? Um, sorry, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Uh, <clears throat> um, or, or shall we? Uh, for those who are interested, I do have a, a blog post about uh, the uh, not about the proposed legislation, but about what Maria Palante had submitted previously about wanting to have increased independence for the Copyright Office. And I do have uh, a blog post uh, that I updated slightly uh, about the uh, Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. Okay. Cool. Um, so if your readers or readers, your listeners are interested in looking this stuff, uh, stuff up further, and of course, all legislation relating to copyright and the Copyright Office mm -hmm. is on the Copyright Office website at copyright.gov. Okay, cool. I will, I'll link to um, the, various, the various articles you've written. I'll, I'll try to link to the, very, the legislation so people can actually read it. And also to um, the last songwriter. So people can get a, can you know, go to the show notes and, and find those things and check them out. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for being here and for Always putting up with the technical difficulties just getting this thing started that happens on occasion. <laughs> well, we got it working. Yeah, we got it working. Um, so, so yeah, thank you. And everyone, uh, thank you all for listening. Um, as we record this, it is exactly one week before the New Music Gathering at Bowling Green, Ohio. I'm sure there will be many many memorials to the massacre while we're there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I will be giving a presentation with Garrett Hope of the uh, Portfolio Composer Friday at 3.45. Uh, we'll be talking about resource sharing for composers and performers. So if you're there, check us out. We'll be talking about essentially, um, I, I talk about this, uh, this panel um, as how to get shit done without breaking the bank. Uh, we'll be joined by Jennifer Jolly, um, Scott Teggy, and I totally forget the name of the third person, um, but he'll be there too. <laughs> um, so yeah, check us out if you're there. Uh, absolutely say hi if you run into me uh, at any point. I, I, I love to, to chat with people. Um, and as always, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Okay.